Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Well, it's been a while since we've talked about clean energy, and we've got some good news on that front. And stick around after the interview. Cynthia Duraco is back with even more good news with Science for the Win. Among the endless bad and worse news from 2020, there is a bit of good news, and it came from an industry that's had its own share of not-so-great news as well, the clean energy industry, which has suffered massive job losses just when we needed these jobs the most. And like most of the effects of the pandemic, the brunt of these losses has fallen mostly on people of color. But wait, I said I had good news. According to my colleague John Rogers, a senior energy analyst, renewable energy generation in the U.S. had its best year, even in 2020. And that's good for us, because we desperately need to incorporate more clean energy into our power mix and cut emissions from generating and consuming electricity. But of course, nothing from 2020 can be completely good news. While other industries have somewhat recovered their jobs, clean energy is still struggling. But John Rogers sees this bad news as an opportunity to do better. He's back on the podcast to talk about the good, the bad, and what's keeping us from 100% renewable energy nationwide. John, uh, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks, Colleen. Great to be back with you. So there's a lot of encouraging news to talk about on the clean energy front. But before we talk about the progress, this has been a really tough year. And I know we talked last spring about job losses due to the pandemic. Can we start with where things stand on that front? Sure, Colleen. And I, I think that's a, uh, that's a really important place to start. So even as we're talking about uh, progress, we have to acknowledge the really difficult circumstances that the that the country and the world have found themselves in. So in the U.S., COVID hit clean energy hard. You know, and if you think about clean energy, you're talking about renewable energy, like solar and wind. You're talking about energy efficiency, maybe advanced vehicles, other technologies. When you and I talked last spring, at that point, more than 600,000 people had lost their jobs in, in this country uh, in the clean energy sector. And that's because COVID made their work either physically or economically impossible. And the recovery uh, certainly to this point has been far from complete. As of November, uh, I saw calculations saying something like uh, 450,000 people in the sector still had not gotten plugged back in. So that mean, meant clean energy jobs were down something like 13% from their pre-COVID levels. And that obviously matters. That matters for workers' families. That matters for their livelihoods. That matters for our transition to clean energy. And and I gotta say, like so much else surrounding the virus, the impacts of the job losses have been unevenly felt. And you see black and Hispanic clean energy workers continuing to shoulder more than their fair share of, of the high levels of unemployment. So those are important considerations as we think about, and uh, certainly as the new administration in D.C. Uh, thinks about addressing COVID and the economy and climate change and racial justice issues. So despite these enormous challenges, um, I mean, I gather things are still moving along. Uh, are you seeing signs of progress? 
Oh, definitely. Yeah, that's a, that's a terrific question. You know, I think the uh, another piece of context is that there there has been a thumb on the scales for fossil fuels for the last four years coming out of Washington, D.C., uh, particularly coal, but uh, but across energy. And you've seen things like the taxes on solar imports that the previous administration put in place. Even so, um, so let me let me wind the clock back to 2006, which was the last time coal, coal was half of our electricity supply on an annual basis. At that point, we had, if you look at the renewable energy space, we had hydro you know, the big dams that were built many decades before that. But wind power was less than 1% of our electricity supply and solar didn't even show up. I mean, you had to really dig into the significant digits to find solar. By last year, 2020, coal had dropped to a fifth. Renewable energy passed coal in terms of its contribution to our electricity supply. Uh, we're still waiting for the final figures, but that's based on preliminary data. That's what we see. It looks like renewables passed coal, probably tied nuclear power. And so those two are neck and neck to be the second largest source of electricity supply uh, in, in this country. That's kind of astonishing progress. You're talking about what, like 14 years or 15, 14 to 15 years? Yeah. So so the pandemic was certainly a factor last year and natural gas has played an important role in, in knocking coal off its perch, but it's also a testament to renewable energy's incredible growth over the last dozen or so years. Other figures we're still waiting for, end of year figures or year end, you know, 2020 figures for wind and solar, but it is pretty clear that 2020 will have been the best year ever for new wind power in terms of megawatts installed. It'll have been the best year ever for new solar and that's uh, not not rooftop solar because of all the the problems, uh, you know, in terms of uh, you know not being able to get into people's houses or and not businesses, not so businesses putting on solar so much is really the large scale solar. So, but what we see is that adding up to the best, probably the best best year ever for solar. To clarify on on solar, we have residential solar, business solar, and then you have. Are you talking about solar farms? That's right. So those three sectors, basically residential, and then you think about commercial and industrial, so so businesses and institutions. But then you've got this other category, which is the large-scale solar, which is the large solar farms you might see by the side of the highway or in a field or in the desert. And just run through how each of those sectors, how they've fared in this past year. Sure. So uh, residential solar, again, had had difficulties because of because of the pandemic and the restrictions on on movement and getting into people's houses solar that targets businesses or institutions certainly it, it will have been a down year but for large-scale solar they were able to keep working and they found safe ways to do it and they kept building and and uh, those will have propelled the sector to a new height for 2020. So essentially, the the pandemic was the the major player here. It wasn't something like fewer incentives or um... no. I, that's a great question. The the pandemic actually uh, hampered hampered some of this growth. What we did have was tax incentives that were that were getting set to change, and certainly cheaper costs. I mean, each year, every year, we've seen wind and solar get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And it's been uh, it's been amazing to watch, and that's certainly been a factor in as utility companies, as customers are going out there thinking about where they're going to get their power from. 
these are the technologies that are rising, rising to the top in so many occasions and so many places around the country. And one other indication of progress, if you look at how we're doing, uh, not just uh, on a countrywide basis, but on a regional basis, we just had the news uh, that the Southwest Power Pool, essentially the regional grid operator for, for a lot of the Great Plains, just said that in 2020, wind power was the number one fuel on an annual basis for the first time ever. So wind beat out coal, wind beat out gas, wind beat out everything else out there for in terms of its contribution to their electricity, to meeting their electricity needs over the course of the year. It's sounding unstoppable, John. You know, it's it's amazing and we need more and we need faster and we need to we need to be constantly thinking about what comes next. I mean, how can we accelerate progress even more? Oh, yeah. Uh, so how do we do that? So let me say uh, costs are going to continue to be a major driver. Again, renewable energy uh, in many parts of the country. Wind power is the cheapest source of new electricity and sometimes even cheaper than existing power plants. Costs are going to continue to be an important driver. There is the role of tax policy. You know, what? how is the federal government getting behind these technologies? And that will continue to be a part of the equation. We're also, we have been seeing a, a really important role for commitments at some level other than the country as a whole. So states uh, increasingly committing to high levels, even 100% uh, renewable or clean energy targets. Uh, you see cities that are making similar commitments and you're seeing companies that are basically saying, look, by X year, we're going to be, we want to be off of fossil fuels. And those are, those are really important drivers because they're going out there and they are signing deals for wind power or for solar power. Um, but again, the federal policy is going to, is going to be something really important to watch and not just watch, but drive in the right direction. So whether that's tax policy or investments in continued innovation or other ways of, of, of deployment, that's, that's going to be a really important piece of the equation so that everybody across the country is being lifted up by this tide. What's holding back even faster growth? If, if you look at what's holding things back, let's say, or what's, what's slowing things down, I might put it in three different buckets. One is inertia. And I'm not talking about sort of the technical term and it means something in the power sector. I'm talking about the policies that are in place, that have been in place for decades and are in place solely because they've been in place for decades. We still reward fossil fuel plants for doing stuff that renewable energy could do at least as well, if not better. We still have power plants that have contracts, sometimes decades out, with uh, with a coal uh, coal supplier, a coal mine, or a uh, a utility that has a contract with a coal with a coal fired power plant, sometimes for decades decades out. And those are things that have just those have got to fall away, and we, we've got to find ways to get past that. Past that, and there's also inertia in in us, uh, the workforce. You know, you think about uh, what it takes. It, it's not like we can just snap our fingers or flip a switch and and switch from having a uh, you know a bunch of people working in fossil fuels to having a bunch of people working in renewable energy. Now, the fact is, there are a whole lot of people who work in renewable energy now, and and it's an incredible job creator. We still need to find ways to help people move 
make that other people make that make that move. So that's sort of the uh, uh, maybe the inertia bucket. There are technical issues about how the pieces fit together. You know, if you think about our national transmission grid uh, has was was built around these large fossil fuel plants or nuclear plants, uh, we need to we need to reconfigure that. We need to make sure that we've got the transmission to get power from the Great Plains, let's say from the Dakotas to the Twin Cities, or from the Great Plains east to the you know, southeastern US. And we need to figure out how we make it easier for us to get to higher and higher levels of variable renewable energy like solar and wind and, and just make, make those pieces work together. And I'd say a third bucket is maybe around public acceptance. Wind power has, you know, a very high favorability rating and and solar is is almost off the charts i mean these are these are acceptance public acceptance ratings that that any politician would die for but that doesn't always translate into uh everybody supporting a particular project in a particular place and and so figuring out ways to help people understand the importance of that that next wind farm or those next solar panels I think those are those are some of the things that you'd want to uh, want to have come together to uh, to make this move even more quickly. We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview. Got Science is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, PRX, and all the usual podcast outlets. For a transcript and links to additional resources from this episode and a full bio of our guest, head over to gotsciencepodcast.org. If you like the podcast, please take a minute to leave us a nice review on Apple Podcasts. It helps us get noticed. And if you're not subscribed, it's super easy and free. Just look us up in any podcast app and click on subscribe. And finally, if you're on Twitter, come talk to us at gotscienceucs. Now let's get back to our interview. So, John, what would you like to see in the the near future? Say the next year. Yeah, well, it, it, it's uh, so it's going to take some time to undo some of the bad stuff from the last few years, but other changes are going to be a lot more immediate. You know, first off, I think we're already going to see the effects of what's already happened. So the the record years for solar and wind last year, we those those wind turbines and those solar panels are going to be generating throughout the you know throughout this year, and so we'll we'll already see a bump up because of that. If you look at Congress, uh, the the stimulus bill that they passed uh, just just recently, there were tax uh, credit extensions, which will be really important for providing greater certainty for. The businesses for for solar and wind developers that we need to have doing doing these things, you know, on day one, the Biden administration bringing us back into the Paris Climate Agreement. You see things that are a little bit more behind the scenes, like appointing a new chair for the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, which is it's an obscure agency for many people, but it's really important for how electricity grids are operated across the country, how we make decisions about the treatment that renewable energy gets and and uh, how much we we stop tilting the playing field toward fossil fuels so there's a new chair there who is much more keen on on clean energy than than others so i think we're seeing things like that come in already we certainly expect if 
you know, you look at something like offshore wind, that offshore wind is going to get a fair shake under this administration. Um, so whether those are project approvals, certainly consideration of projects, opening up new leasing areas off our coasts for, for more offshore wind, those are going to be really important. And then if you think more broadly about clean energy, energy efficiency, there's a lot of stuff that got held up over the last four years, progress we could have been making faster progress on, on energy efficiency, appliances or cars or other things that, uh, that this administration will get back on track. So, John, I know you're a wind turbine guy. I know that's a lot of what, uh, what you study and have your finger on the pulse of. You know, when I think of turbines, I think technology will advance in that they'll get bigger and more powerful and we'll put them in windier places. Are there other types of technology or, or tell me what you're seeing on the on the wind front? Sure. And I'll, I'll say to all my solar friends out there, I'm, I'm not a wind guy. I'm both. I'm both. I love you both. Uh, but on the- <laughs> I love all your children equally. I love all my, yes. So in the wind, so a few things to watch. I'd say with land-based wind on land land-based wind turbines what you are seeing is is longer blades and taller towers and what that means is that wind turbines can now generate and generate economically uh generate power in areas even parts of the country where where large-scale wind hasn't really caught on and so i think that's a that's a really exciting development and and we're going to continue to see progress on that front if you look offshore um we will continue to see turbines getting getting bigger and bigger. Um, when you and I were having this conversation a couple of years ago, I think we were talking about turbines in the eight to 10 megawatt range. Now all the talk is about 13 or 14 or 15 megawatt wind turbines that are coming. And just to give you a sense of what that means, since 13 megawatts is hard to picture, 13 megawatts, if that turbine is going full out, it will generate enough energy to power a house in seven seconds, power a house for a day in seven seconds. So now there's a, there are a lot of caveats about, you know, you got to get the power from the wind turbine to the land, to my house. You've got to store the power so I can use it 24 hours, not just in for those seven seconds, but just to give you a sense of that scale. So power a house for a day in seven seconds. That's amazing. I mean, I'd be happy with ten seconds. Ten seconds. All right, we'll see what we'll see what we can do. We'll just stretch it out with a little bit of battery. So that's. I mean, one one is the size of the turbines. Another is the size of the projects. As we get larger and larger projects, meaning more of these turbines put together, uh, that's going to help drive down the costs too. So both those things are contributing to to reductions in costs, which are going to make this even more attractive. Um, the thing about offshore wind turbines is we're not limited size bound the way we are on land, you know, on land, you've got to get that, that turbine blade or that tower section where it's going, which means driving on roads and going under bridges and making hairpin turns and all that. And, uh, you know, that gets, uh, that gets, that gets more difficult. I recently read that some of the blades for these, uh, for the turbines that are going to be out in deep ocean, are something like two football fields long? Uh, more than a, more than a football field uh, is what what we're seeing now. I mean, you've got okay more uh, than blade, a football field blades that are coming out now that are a hundred and 
seven meters long and that's that's where we're that's where we're headed in the very near future so that's and 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 the thing is you're not constrained nearly as much on on open water because you know it's easy to turn there are no bridges out in the out in the middle of the ocean and so you can you're you're not constrained that way you still have to think about the size of the ships that are going to do the work you know to to install these things and that's certainly a topic of conversation here in the u.s because we've got to start building those, in fact, the first one is is under development now, but b- building those special barges that are that are going to make it possible to uh, to install those types of turbines here. And what about solar? Oh, I love I love solar. Uh, solar uh, is going to keep getting more efficient. You know, we see incremental improvements in efficiency. It's going to keep getting cheaper as the modules get larger, as the industry gets larger. But there are opportunities. They're on the horizon for different types of materials. A lot of the solar panels we use now are based on silicon, but there are other classes of materials that may maybe supplement that. So you can imagine these multi-junction cells that have these different technologies overlaid on each other that are capturing different parts of the spectrum of what's what's coming from the sun. And so real opportunities to even even get past some of the sort of physical limits that we've that we've faced up to this point. So stay tuned, stay tuned for that. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, it, it is. And, you know, this is, uh, you know, I started working in solar panels in the early 1990s and it's, it's been silicon for uh, in in. Not exclusively, but but in most cases, that's been that's been the technology that that has uh, dominated the market, and uh, it's played a really important role. But expanding the the range of technologies we have available to us, there's that's nothing but a good thing. John, any closing thoughts? I should say hi to Omari, shouldn't I? Because he's probably the one uh, helping to make this sound intelligent. Thanks, Omari. <laughs> He is, in fact, the one who's going to... I'm glad. So all this, you know, as you and I have talked about, none of none of this happens automatically. So uh, we are going to be looking to clean energy to be an important piece of our way forward. And again, that's in terms of uh, the economy, certainly. That's in terms of public health. That's in terms of uh, getting getting past the pandemic. That's in, in terms of dealing with climate change and also... You know, we have to keep in mind in all of this, thinking about the equity, equity considerations. So uh, on who has borne the burden from the way we've made and used power for so many decades, uh, but also who how, how the benefits are shared, who has access to the to the benefits, who's making the decisions about new technologies that are being brought online. And, and you know, with respect to the new administration in, in D.C., uh, we'll we'll be watching and we'll be uh, engaging to ensure that the that the promise of this new admin, the new administration comes to fruition. None of this is automatic. We need to we need to continue to be engaged to make sure that we're making the best decisions possible, the decisions that will best serve us, not just for the coming months or years, but but for the long term. Well, John, thanks thanks for joining me. Um, I feel like we are. On the road to recovery, we have a COVID vaccine that's being deployed. A plan is being put in place. Hopefully that will mean many people can get back to work and we can really start to see some acceleration of our our clean energy future. 
Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And it's a, it's a pleasure to talk with you again, Colleen. Thanks for having me. Well, every so often, we like to lighten the mood with an uplifting science story or news item. Today, we're bringing you a new installment of our segment called Science for the Win. Welcome our winning correspondent, Cynthia Duraco, to the mic. Thanks, Colleen. I'd like to spin a somewhat hypothetical scenario for you. Imagine that you are a political appointee at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency. You've been appointed by someone who loves multi-billion dollar polluting industries, so you love them too. You're in charge of making decisions about how much polluters get to pollute, which according to you should be a lot. You are ready to unleash the pollution. Exciting, right? But not so fast. Apparently, there are a bunch of pesky health studies that are supposed to inform your decisions about pollution in the air, water, and ground. And spoiler alert, these studies show that pollution is bad for humans. Which means if you start rewriting the rules, you could get in trouble for intentionally going against proven science. You're stuck. And the powerful folks who got you in office so that you could undo the rules? They're mad. So what do you do? Well, you could try what former EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt did. And what Replacement Administrator Andrew Wheeler also tried after him. Under both leaders, the EPA proposed a rule change that would have restricted its own ability to base environmental safeguards on peer-reviewed health research. The flimsy claim for this rule change was that this research is often based on data that's not publicly available because of medical privacy laws. So basically, if the data weren't public, the EPA couldn't use it or had to give it less weight. This serves no one except for those who want to ignore the well-established evidence that pollution is bad for our health. And this rule is something that polluters have been trying to turn into official policy for many years, well before administrators Pruitt and Wheeler ran the EPA. They tried it in Congress, and it didn't work. They tried it with other federal agencies and made some progress. Then they tried it with Pruitt and Wheeler. And because this is science for the win, not big losses for science— I am delighted to tell you that this time they failed and failed hard. On his way out in January, Wheeler violated a process law in his haste to get the rule on the books. So a few environmental organizations sued the EPA for the process violation, and the case ended up in a federal court in Montana. In late January, a judge ruled that the process violation was illegal, by February, the Biden administration was in office and asked to overturn the rule completely, which the court did. That means the rule is no longer a rule. It's gone. The EPA can continue setting safeguards according to what the best science recommends. Hooray for science. And hooray for people like you, who heard organizations like UCS when we sounded the alarm on how dangerous this rule would be and submitted more than half a million public comments against it. Hooray for the experts who testified during the UCS hearing on the proposal, since the EPA refused to hold one. Hooray for every single person with any kind of sway in the scientific community who raised their voices against the rule change. We shouldn't have had to keep fighting this fight. But we did. And we won. I'm Cynthia Duraco, and this has been Science for the Win.
Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 125,000 members of UCS, and especially our partners for the Earth, the 13,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to help us stand up for science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to John Rogers. Science for the Win was brought to you by Cynthia Duraco. Editing by Omari Spears. Additional editing and music by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth and Jayu Liang. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Come chat with us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, stay safe, wear your masks, and see you next time.